Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Friday, May 15th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. How far can respiratory droplets fall when we speak? What would an elderly health plan targeted toward the elderly look like? Some advice on combating COVID-19 symptoms from someone currently in recovery. Plus, have birds gotten louder recently? Why did Michael Jordan agree to star in Space Jam? And a site to help you discover new-to-you music on Spotify. More than two-thirds of U.S. states have now relaxed their lockdown restrictions. As many hope it will ease economic strain, others remain concerned about the impact on public health. Those differing perspectives are leading to fights breaking out at stores and putting retail employees at risk as they attempt to enforce store or local policies. A Target employee in California sustained a broken arm while helping remove customers who refused to wear masks. A cashier in Pennsylvania was punched in the face three times when she told a man he needed to be wearing a mask to be allowed to purchase items. And a security guard in Michigan was shot and killed when he insisted a customer put on a mask before entering. A new study from BMJ Global Health found that more than a quarter of the most viewed English language coronavirus-related videos on YouTube contain misleading or inaccurate information. Some online have also been pointing out that some of these videos are playing as pre-roll ads on unrelated videos, so even people who aren't looking for coronavirus information might get served up a conspiracy theory in ad form. YouTube replied in a statement saying, quote, To date, we've removed thousands and thousands of videos for violating our COVID-19 policies and directed tens of billions of impressions to global and local health organizations from our homepage and information panels. We are committed to providing timely and helpful information at this critical time, including raising authoritative content, reducing the spread of harmful misinformation, and showing information panels using NHS and World Health Organization data to help combat misinformation, end quote. Slovenia has become the first European country to announce an end to the epidemic, saying they will ease border crossing restrictions for EU members and reopen some schools on Monday. Slovenia acted quickly at the start of March to impose strict lockdown measures, which residents largely followed, and which kept their case and fatality numbers relatively low. Meanwhile, Germany, Europe's largest economy, has entered into a recession, suffering its worst contraction since the 2008 financial crisis. Quoting the New York Times, The European Commission has projected that the European Union economy will shrink by 7.4% this year, the worst recession in its history, end quote. And a new report from the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases and the University of Pennsylvania says, quoting the Washington Post here, Ordinary speech can emit small respiratory droplets that linger in the air for at least eight minutes and potentially much longer. End quote. Now, it's important to note that this study was not studying coronavirus or any other virus, just how humans generate droplets when they speak. Though, the researchers point out, those droplets absolutely could contain infectious doses, so it's helpful to keep in mind, especially when considering the impact of a mask or face covering. While we now know that just about every age group can get sick from COVID-19, it does remain much more lethal for the elderly. 
Exact ratios vary across nations, but tech executive Elad Gill aggregated the case fatality rates, or CFR, from around the world. Quote, Depending on the country, the CFR for patients over 80 years old is 10 to 55 times the CFR of patients in their 50s, 30 to 100 times the CFR of patients in their 40s, and 60 to 240 times the CFR of patients in their 30s, end quote. Now, of course, this mostly adds up because aging can make you more susceptible to any illness, but David Wallace-Wells, writing in New York Magazine this week, wonders why, like other healthcare policies and infrastructure for other illnesses to which the elderly are more susceptible, our COVID-19 policies have not been commensurately adjusted to account for this. He argues that while blanket lockdown measures made sense in locations with severe outbreaks who needed to move quickly, we might have been able to target lockdowns and other initiatives for more vulnerable populations in places where there was time to plan, and thereby could have avoided some of the lockdown fatigue and restlessness and economic strain that will only continue to mount the longer people stay at home. Here's his proposal for what a public health plan targeted to protect the elderly could have looked like. Quote, we could have immediately prioritized the supply of PPE to old age homes, perhaps deploying a sort of national monitoring force of public health officials to hold these facilities, notoriously poorly run, up to standard and ensure that new coronavirus-specific hygienic protocols were enforced. We could have done the same for testing materials, requiring residents and staff to be regularly tested, as New York has just now started to do only months later after nearly 5,000 have died in nursing homes in the state. We could have stopped discharging from hospitals elderly patients who were going to return to nursing homes and potentially spread the disease, instead establishing a more centralized quarantine system like those in Hong Kong and Wuhan. We could have been much more emphatic and explicit in issuing behavioral guidelines for the elderly, their families, and those interacting with them, so that it was much clearer precisely what the risks to the old were and how all of those around them could try to minimize them. We could have provided additional support for those living at home or trying to isolate, in part by ramping up meal and prescription delivery programs. We could have deployed the limited resources we had capable of real contact tracing to focus on elderly communities. And as we expanded those resources, we could have continued that focus even as the contact tracers expanded their purview to deal with more and more of the pandemic." End quote. Wallace Wells says some of this can still be implemented, and he thinks should be, in particular because he sees it as unlikely we'll have universal interventions like mass testing available at the scale required anytime soon. So targeting the most vulnerable populations with effective interventions makes sense. Of course, with other populations particularly vulnerable to COVID-19, like Black Americans, for example, the idea of targeting certain policies, especially when it comes to things like medical surveillance, can make people uneasy. Wallace Wells notes, quote, Our policy, by and large, has treated every person as equally at risk, but the disease doesn't treat us all equally, end quote. In addition to managing the pandemic inefficiently, equal and vague guidelines don't serve different, more vulnerable populations effectively. Quoting New York Magazine's paraphrasing of Julia Marcus in The Atlantic, these guidelines are like abstinence-only sex education. It doesn't give you anything like the information you need to actually succeed at managing your own risk, in part because it's one-size-fits-all, and in part because that size simply won't fit everybody, or perhaps anybody, in the long run. End quote.
of that said, while the fatality rate does increase the older someone is, younger adults with or without pre-existing conditions can still fall very ill from COVID-19. Mara Gay, an editorial writer at the New York Times, is currently recovering from COVID-19 and shared her experience in an op-ed yesterday. Since we haven't done a first-person perspective in a while on this show, I thought I would share what she has to say, particularly because she has some very good practical tips on what to do if you experience certain symptoms. First, though, she stresses how serious this situation really is. Gay is 33 years old. She had no pre-existing conditions. She walked up and down the stairs of her fifth-floor apartment multiple times a day. The day before she fell sick, she ran three miles. A month later, she uses an inhaler twice a day and struggles to walk just a few blocks. She wrote, quote, If you live in New York City, you know what this virus can do. In just under two months, an estimated 24,000 New Yorkers have died. That's more than twice the number of people we lost to homicide over the past 20 years. Now I worry for Americans elsewhere. When I see photographs of crowds packing into a newly reopened big box store in Arkansas or scores of people jammed into a Colorado restaurant without masks, it's clear too many Americans still don't grasp the power of this disease. End quote. Though Gay was relatively lucky to not have to be put on a ventilator, she did end up in the hospital after feeling like there was, quote, hot tar buried deep in her chest. Between her stay at the hospital and the advice of various friends of hers who are healthcare workers and helped look after her as she recovered at home, Gay accumulated some advice for treating symptoms. Quote, If you can, get an oximeter, a magical little device that measures your pulse and blood oxygen level from your fingertip. If you become sick and your oxygen dips below 95 or if you have trouble breathing, go to the emergency room. Don't wait. If you have chest symptoms, assume you may have pneumonia and call a doctor or go to the ER. Sleep on your stomach since much of your lungs are actually in your back. If your oxygen is stable, change positions every hour. Do breathing exercises, a lot of them. The one that seemed to work best for me was pioneered by nurses in the British health system. End quote. And I'll put a link to a video of a doctor explaining that breathing exercise in the show notes, but essentially what you do is take five deep breaths, holding for five seconds each time, do one more deep breath, followed by a cough and do that whole series again, and then lay flat on your back and take slightly deeper breaths for the next 10 minutes. Going on to emphasize again the severity of this crisis, Gay wrote, quote, I want Americans to understand that this virus is making otherwise young, healthy people very, very sick. I want them to know this is no flu. Even healthy New Yorkers in their 20s have been hospitalized. At least 13 children in New York State have died from COVID-19, according to health department data. My friend's 29-year-old boyfriend was even sicker than I was and at one point could barely walk across their living room. Maybe you don't know anybody who is sick. Maybe you think we're crazy for living in New York City. That's fine. You don't have to live like us or vote like us, but please learn from us. Please take this virus seriously. End quote. So when I woke up the first day that non-essential workers had been instructed to stay home here in New York City... The very first thing I noticed was how eerily quiet it was. Usually, I get woken up naturally by the sounds of the city. Cars speeding by and honking, neighbors shouting to each other, slamming doors, dogs barking, commuters chatting as they walk. With so many people with nowhere to go that morning, there was almost silence. 
And it's not just my neighborhood. People around the world are noticing a marked drop in sound levels, quoting NPR. In Paris, for instance, a group that monitors noise pollution saw as much as a 90% drop in human sounds since the city went on lockdown, end quote. Seismologist Andy Frasetto, along with colleagues in Brussels and California, noticed a huge decline in, quote, human-caused vibrations on the Earth's crust. Quoting NPR, automobiles, planes, trains, even our walking registers on seismographs as a kind of constant static. And now that static is way less noisy, giving seismologists a unique opportunity to perhaps detect more subtle vibrations that usually get drowned out, like the ones coming from inside volcanoes close to cities. End quote. And with this reduction in human-created noise, a lot of people are paying closer attention to the natural world. And many have reported that birds are singing more loudly. But Sue Ann Zollinger, an ornithologist from Manchester Metropolitan University, says the birds are actually probably quieter than usual because they don't have noise pollution to compete with. Think of it like when we're in a noisy place like a bar and we raise our voices to be heard. Yet because our environments now overall are quieter, the birds sound louder. Zollinger told NPR, quote, We know from some earlier studies in the city of Berlin that birds sing quieter on the weekend mornings during the time that's normally rush hour than they do during those rush hour periods during the week because the noise levels are lower. Zollinger recorded a bird called a chiff-chaff at her home, which is near an airport, once with an airplane in the background and again without the sound of an airplane. See if you can hear the difference. Here it is with the airplane sound. And now without the background airplane sound. So it might sound louder to you without the background noise, but Zollinger says the Chiff Chaff's song almost doubled in decibel level when the airplane noise was present. And while this silence is an interesting phenomenon for us humans, the Irish Times points out that noise pollution can be pretty bad for some wildlife, so this reprieve, temporary as it may be, is a positive change for them. For example, quote, There's a lot of research going on about the effect of traffic noise on birds' efforts to lure a mate. Birds sing early in the morning to mark their territory and to attract partners, but unfortunately this usually coincides with both the early morning rush hour and early morning flights. End quote. And Megan Gall, a sensory ecologist and professor at Vassar College, told NPR that noise increases stress hormone responses in birds, which affects their immune function. With less noise, there's less illness. And if they don't have to expend as much energy chirping so loudly over the other noise, they can use that energy to find food and raise healthier offspring. While we're not likely to see any long-term changes from this brief interlude of relative silence, most of the experts quoted above agree that the one change they hope to see is that people continue to pay more attention to the natural world around them in the future. The final episodes of ESPN and Netflix's Michael Jordan docuseries, The Last Dance, are airing back-to-back this weekend. If you've been watching along, you know that it is a pretty phenomenal series and a good watch whether you're into basketball or not, because even if you're not, I mean, who doesn't know Michael Jordan? Every installment so far has lit up the internet with praise and discussion, but a quick scene in last Sunday's episode really got people talking. After Jordan's return to the Bulls and devastating 1995 playoffs loss, the documentary shows him training harder than ever that summer, while also filming Space Jam. 
For a documentary that takes itself pretty seriously, it amused a lot of people to see them try to continue that tone as B-roll played of Jordan fighting off a team of actors in full-body green screen suits. And the dissonance led Nate Jones from Vulture to wonder, why did Michael Jordan agree to star in Space Jam? Quoting Vulture, By all accounts, the idea for Space Jam came from Michael Jordan's agent, David Falk. Jordan had previously played alongside Bugs Bunny in a 1992 Super Bowl commercial for Nike, and Falk hit upon the idea of expanding that minute-long spot into a feature film. The Eureka moment was less about the duo's palpable screen chemistry, though that was apparently what convinced Warner Brothers to greenlight the project, and more in terms of brand synergy. Warner's at the time was looking to reboot the Looney Tunes, and according to the Chicago Tribune, Fox sold the concept to the studio as, quote, as much for its merchandising potential as for its box office appeal. Jordan and his team had spent years turning down Hollywood offers. Taking the wrong project could lead to disaster. See Kazam. But this one ticked all the right boxes. Starring in a kid's movie fit perfectly with Jordan's squeaky clean image, and it gave him a role everyone knew he could handle. Himself. The project also provided numerous cross-promotional opportunities, including plenty of screen time for the Air Jordans and key product placement for his other endorsements. Everything he did was integrated, Falk would later say. End quote. And the six weeks of double duty, training in a custom gym and basketball court built by Warner Brothers in between takes in front of the green screen, paid off. The film made $230 million worldwide and brought in an extra $1.2 billion in merchandise sales. The soundtrack was certified six times platinum, winning two Grammys. Michael Jordan solidified himself even further into the world of the millennial canon. And director Joe Pitka even claims that he and the film helped get Jordan and Dennis Rodman talking, leading to Rodman's trade to the Bulls. Because of the movie's success, Warner Brothers immediately started thinking about a sequel, but after Michael Jordan declined to star in Space Jam 2, they started investigating other celebrity athletes. One Space Jam 2 script centered on Tiger Woods. There was also Spy Jam with Jackie Chan, Race Jam with Jeff Gordon, and Skate Jam with Tony Hawk. Of course, none of those made it to the silver screen. The real sequel, with LeBron James, Space Jam 2, A New Legacy, will be coming out summer 2021, though with how many twists and turns its production has taken in the six years since it was officially announced, and now with the pandemic throwing a wrench into things, who knows if Space Jam 2 will ever actually come to be. But speaking of the pandemic, you might have seen this back in March when the NBA announced they were suspending the rest of the season. A lot of people noticed it had an eerie resonance with the plot of Space Jam. At the start of the movie, the villainous Monstars steal the talent of five NBA players. Suddenly unable to play basketball, they and their coaches assume they're sick with some sort of viral or bacterial infection. It's gotta be germs in there or something. Yeah, that was in New York, 3,000 miles away. Bacteria like that can travel faster than the speed of light. Yeah, it could be invasion of the body that you Yeah, yeah, it'd be. All right. Rest in the hallway. Okay. After meeting with team owners, I have decided that until we can guarantee the health and safety of our NBA players, there will be no more basketball this season. And a weird footnote, Space Jam was released on VHS DVD and Laserdisc on March 11th, 1997. 23 years to the day 
that the NBA made the call to suspend the rest of the season due to the threat of coronavirus. So Space Jam has turned out to be a pretty portentous movie, but it's also become a bit of a time capsule, at least in the form of its website. If you haven't been before, I recommend going to SpaceJam.com. The official Warner Brothers film site hasn't been updated since 1996, but it's still kicking. You can download screensavers, see if the soundtrack is playing on a radio station near you, 24 years ago, and even take a VR tour of the Jordan Dome, that basketball court Warner Brothers built for Jordan to train in while filming. It is a beautiful nostalgia trip. And finally today, if you're looking for some new music to listen to this weekend, maybe try the website Forgotify. It's a site that generates a random song on Spotify that has never been listened to before. A song with zero complete plays. When you go to Forgotify.com, a 30-second preview of a random song is embedded in a Spotify player on the site with a button so that you can go listen to the full song in the Spotify app if you want to. It really is a roll of the dice on what you're going to get. On my first spin, I got a song called Between Old Friends that turned out to be by a singing duo called Mark Pearson and Mike McCoy who've been friends and singing together for over 50 years. I ended up looking up their other music, Mark's podcast and their Patreon, I had a great time learning more about these artists that I had never heard of. Then I got a song by acclaimed pianist Michael Reese, who has some songs on Spotify with tens of thousands of plays and is even verified, but this one song of his had gotten lost in the shuffle. So Forgotify is also cool for that, finding more obscure tracks from artists that have had a little bit of success. Not every song is going to be amazing or exactly what you're looking for, but you know, just keep pressing next and see where it takes you. And if you're a musician with tracks that you want more listens on, you can also reach out to Forgotify on their site to be featured yourself. That is the show for today. As always, this show is produced by Ride Home Media, the daily news podcast people. If you're looking for more to listen to this weekend, maybe check out our other shows, the Tech Meme Ride Home or the Gaming Ride Home. I hope you all have a good weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.